It should be obvious that upon first watch, my favorite scene in Attack of the Clones was the one with the animals. Well, beasts or monsters would probably be more apt. In this great Colosseum battle, we see Anakin, Padme, and Kenobi fight for their lives before hundreds of Jedi and thousands of clones and battle droids descend upon the event. Truly epic. But my love for the scene pales in comparison to my love for my favorite line in any Star Wars script ever. I don't like sand. It's rough, it's coarse and irritating, and it gets everywhere. I know what you're thinking. He must be kidding, right? But hear me out. Growing up, I struggled to fit in. I was weird. Part of that weirdness was my obsession with Star Wars, yes, but also it helped me feel normal. This line, most of all. I was always a killjoy at beaches. People talked about how much they loved the beach, the sand in their toes. I hated nothing more than I hated sand. I still do. I remember watching this and finally feeling like someone got me. Anakin understood. It's kind of funny looking back, but I really felt that. Thanks to this one corny line. Thanks, Anakin, George, and Hayden. I never know how to transition from these to the actual show. Just just say something. Just reply. Right. Okay. Wow. Thanks, Al. <laughs> what an interesting contribution to the... <laughs> I don't know. What an interesting um, contribution. Test. Test. Um, okay. How, thanks, how, Alec. Thank, oh, fuck. I just got to get out of my light. <laughs> just got to talk like a normal person. Oh, can you say like your last sentence again? <laughs> thanks, Anakin, George, and Hayden. Well, I'd like to thank you, Alex, for... Uh, Adding some gravitas and meaning to probably one of the most reviled lines in, in the prequel trilogy. In, in all of film history, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That when sure. when people when people comment on on Star Wars, on the writing in Star Wars, that's the line they go to. This is and and all the time. I I hate the dialogue in Star Wars as much as anybody else. I think Star Wars has awful dialogue all around. It's written by an AI, but mm -hmm. I do love this line. Like I really sincerely love this line because of how it made me feel as, as a kid. And I think that's a big theme for us and the, and the prequel trilogy is how it made us feel as kids. Cause that's, that's where we were at when it all came out. Like I can be, I can imagine being incredibly disappointed if I had watched these movies as an adult who had, stood in line to watch the original trilogy come out. But hopefully your uh, your thoughts and feelings have saved somebody, saved somebody's opinions of these movies. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Now people are, are looking back and saying, you know what? Maybe that line's not so bad. Because it's true. I hate sand. It's awful. So in terms of reviewing the movie, I mean, the opening scene, this is something that I overlooked for a long time. Um, but I think the opening scene, scene is one of those things that, like, critics and, and film uh, aficionados can, can really say, this is actually an opening scene because we've got this ship from Naboo. It comes down to Coruscant, and it is descending through the fog. And we get the sense and feeling that things aren't as crisp and clear, and our sense of right and wrong isn't what it should be. Things are hazy and mysterious. And then... The ship lands and the ship blows up. And that is like, if you think this movie came out in 2002, 
September 11th was 2001. This movie comes out like six months later. I wonder if they ham-fisted the terrorist scene in there after uh, the War on Terror. Yeah, I don't know. Because it was just like, guys, how do we capitalize on other people's death and misery? Let's put terrorists into our movie. (laughs) But overall, yes, that's just what I'd say is an opening highlight is that actual opening scene traveling through the fog of Coruscant. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And... And I, uh, I love <laughs> one of the best when they get onto the dock when they land, and then uh, Corday I think was her was her decoy at that time, and uh, she gets blown up and she's like, "I'm sorry, my lady, I failed you." <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, no, you like did the job yeah. perfectly. Does Padme say something to that effect? Like, no, no, her uh, her bodyguard does. Oh, okay. He says Corday did her job. Right. Now let's do ours. Right, right, right. Yeah. But no, it it is a great way to start the film, and I I like the way that you bring because before when they came to Coruscant in the first movie, it it does have that like crisp, clean. We're going to this beautiful, epic city, you know, planet. And then in this one, it's like, no, no, now we're descending into the into the end of the Jedi. And one of the biggest ways that you start to see that is through their dogma. They, their dogma, the Jedi's dogma, comes up over and over again. Mm-hmm. Politicians are not to be trusted. Uh, and then even in episode one, you get Anakin is too old to train. This weapon is your life. How many times does... Obi-Wan say that right Mm -hmm. everything Obi-Wan says in here is like just a brainwashed Jedi thing to say there's no nuance there's no complication and they're existing in an increasingly complicated world and 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 that fails the Jedi in the end I only realized maybe that that Anakin's fall to the dark side was a result of a total systematic failure of the Jedi and their hubris you know, really kind of around the time that The Last Jedi came out, and then The Last Jedi really crystallizes and affirms that with Luke when he goes on his rant about the failure of the Jedi. Right. I think these the prequels, it's like they're walking a line where the dialogue is so bad and the characters are so dumb that it's like, was it Jedi hubris? Or is that the story we tell ourselves now to make sense of how dumb some of these characters were? <laughs> No, I, I think it is. I think it definitely is hubris because you've got, you know, none of them can see what's right in front of them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think I think we've talked about it before where the reason Palpatine was able to pull the wool over everyone's eyes was because he was already a politician, right? They say the politicians are not to be trusted. They already don't trust him. And so now... They, they just say, of course he's not trustworthy, he's a politician, when really he's the Sith Lord mm. this whole time. So they sense deception and darkness around him because he's a politician, and they think that about politicians, so they never... Right, right, right. Perfect disguise for Palpatine. Good job, Palps. I just, I wonder about that, because it, like, one of the bigger issues that's presented in this movie that shows kind of the callous disregard of human life that the Jedi have is raising a clone army, like, without question. Oh, yeah. But that's not like, that's not presented as like an issue in the movie. But I feel like that would, if one thing points to the failure of the Jedi, it's that they're supposed to be the the defenders of life and peace and justice. And then they are manufacturing living things to fight a war for them. I do think there are a couple moments where, where they 
kind of talk about that, about how mysterious it is that they have the clone army. And I think they even, I think they even kind of start figuring it out that this is, you know, kind of a trap. But at the same time, they're like, oh, but we like need the army to fight this war. And so they go along with it. But they don't question like the morality of a clone army of growing human things to fight and die for you. Right. But the Jedi are also the people who kidnap children around the world to use them in their ranks, right? Like the Jedi are not morally good. You know, in the in the context of the Star Wars universe, that's what they're put up as. They're they're talked about like they are the center of all good in the universe, the light side of the Force. But they're not like they do so many questionable things. But the, they're not raised as questionable, which makes me wonder if it's like an oversight on the part of the writer director, or if it was intentional. I I think it's within the universe. I I think within the universe, they are. You know, we kind of talked about this in our uh, Empire Strikes Back episode mm-hmm. where where I was complaining about Yoda's little proverb when he's like, do or do not, there is no try, right? I think it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it's not true, right? It's not like a good advice, but they think they think they're doing what's right. But then like based on that saying... And the the fallout from it of Luke ignoring Yoda, of having being full of self doubt, of not being able to realize his potential, and then going to run off. It it's not played that like Yoda is just some crazy old alien spouting nonsense proverbs. These proverbs seem to be true within you know within the context. <laughs> right, right. But within the context of the universe, the Jedi are still propped up as being good, even though they're they're not right. They do a lot of bad things but they're still they're they're still presented that way because so my like my thinking goes back to is this an oversight of the director or is this intentional and i just say like the way it's really it's hard to tell whether or not this is just us justifying oversight or if it was an intentional lapse in judgment of the writer director i I think (laughs) it is intentional i think i don't think they uh, because there are some times when they're like oh really you know so I, I think it's intentional. That's what I'm going with. That's my okay. that's my position. Because it's just like like some things are so it's like they're supposed to sense other people's feelings and they can sense Anakin's attachment to his mother, but they can't sense his attachment to Padme. But then he does kind of tip off Obi Wan that he's very nervous to be around her. And then Obi Wan's like, Mind your feelings. Now go watch her and Sleep. be alone. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. With it's, her. But they so Obi-Wan's obviously it, aware of it. But they don't care. Like, they don't... It's almost like... It's almost like watching... Uh, what's that uh, Shakespearean play? Not Twelfth Night. Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's just, like, a bunch of misunderstandings and people are getting transformed into weird animals and all these weird things happen and everybody's just laughing. It's like if you put a laugh track in this movie with how stupid the characters are, it'd be a, like the comedy sensation of the year. Do you know how funny that would be? Could you imagine like, <laughs> oh, oh, Obi-Wan and uh, Padme's guard standing there at the at the little shuttle bus and he's like, I'd be more concerned about her than him. And then it's like, <laughs> you know, exactly. Except like, this is almost like a comedy of just like, it is, it is almost a three stooges level of just like idiocy. They're like, 
oh, did you know Sifo Diaz was making a clone army? They're like, huh? oh, let's use it. <laughs> 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 and he's <laughs> dead now. <laughs> okay. Let's just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I know. It is like, it's like, you might want to look into this, especially since the planet wasn't on in the Jedi archives either. Yeah, and they're just like, well, if it's not there, it's not there. Right, right. More of the dogma. Madame Jocasta knew how offended she was. Excuse yeah. me. If it does not appear in our records, it does not exist. Mm -hmm. It's like, it, okay, lady, you just know everything, <laughs> even though half the galaxy isn't charted. Right. Yeah, and she failed lightsaber school. That's why she's a librarian. <laughs> right, right. right. Yeah. What a yeah. disappointment. Yeah, and then also another another one of the ridiculous things. Uh, as far as dogma goes, is their defense of Dooku when Kiadu Mundi is like, Count Dooku is a political idealist, not a terrorist. And it's like, well, like how, when was the last time you chatted with him? You know? I know like they're all just saying these dumb things. And it's like, yeah, they all say dumb things to avoid doing work. And one man's political idealist is another man's terrorist, right? Like, right. those are so... The only thing that divides them is action. Like, once I started getting real, like, kind of career jobs, and if I found a problem or a mistake or something like that, my boss would, like, lay into me about digging into finding out, you know, cultivating a sense of like curiosity and and professional skepticism and trying to ask why these things mm -hmm. are the way they are instead of just being like oh i mean he's an idealist he's not a terrorist so i just didn't really think about it anymore like that's always that's always been the challenge to be curious and explore and it's kind of like you've got this organization of the defenders of the galaxy and they're curious about nothing nothing and you like they don't know anything they just yeah. they they just blanket everyone they meet Oh, they're a politician. You can't trust them. Okay, people are a lot more complicated than that, my guy. Yeah. You know, like, but, like I, look into it. The problem that they have, though, I think, in these movies is that you don't see the consequences flow from their ineptitude, right? Because at the end, Anakin's the one getting his hand cut off, mm -hmm. and they seem to be winning the Clone War. Right. Right? They come in with the army and save the day at the end. And, I mean, other than the Imperial theme faintly playing in the background at the end as they're loading up starships, nothing about this feels like a failure or a loss or incompetence. Right. And I, I, think, I think that's the point, is to make it seem like they're winning so that when they fall in the next film, it, it's just that much more awful. But there's, not, like, there's nothing to hint that, may, other than the Imperial March theme playing, there's nothing to hint that they've dropped the ball in some way that's going to bite them in the butt right. later. Be because we're watching from the Jedi's perspective, right? It looks like they're winning. I think, I think that's the idea. That's, that's the idea. <sighs> okay. <laughs> we can, we okay. can disagree on, on, on yeah, that. Like I've got, I really that, think that's that my it, interpretation. I really take it like it, the idea was poorly executed. I'm not, I'm not saying the movie yeah. can't be better. No, but I just mean, like, with those things that you're saying, no, this was the intention. I'm like, I think this is just, like, they got a little pie in the sky, didn't really think about the payoff of what they're trying to, about communicating what they're trying to communicate. 
Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can see things lost in translation, but I, I, I will stand, I will stand by it. Okay. Uh, some more uh, for some more dogma. Yeah. Uh, the what did what did Palpatine say? He he says for over a thousand generations the Republic has stood like it will it will not fall right. And I'm thinking, okay, that's like it's a thousand years old. It can't fail. Said the Romans, right? Like. Yeah, yeah. Oh, congratulations, you know. How could something last all this time and not be right, not be good? It's like, well, like a lot of things do that. Um, so that's a, that's one of my things. And then going back to the beginning before we like completely move on to maybe maybe some other other things like symbolism and stuff that you found in it, I want to mention Anakin confides in Jar Jar Binks about how he feels about Padme that like what what an oversight your feelings are supposed to be secret and you told Jar Jar Binks and they didn't really have a relationship in the first movie right other than yeah no like they don't have a lot of they fly on the the ship from uh Tatooine but other oh I guess they work on rebuilding the pod racer a bit I guess so okay maybe they interact a little more maybe yeah now that I've still it just it still is like a weird thing. I've thought about her every every night since since I first met her. It's like, dude, if if you're still thinking about the girl you had a crush on when you were ten, like you need to move on. Well, he's been like in a convent, right? Like, right. But aren't there you know some Jedi girls he can have crushes on? Yeah, like Addie Gallia or whatever. Like I don't know. Maybe they all have octopus heads. Some people are into that. Yeah, yeah. I. That's interesting. I think, like to me, that just seems like kind of sloppy. We need to shove in somewhere that Anakin still has feelings and he's struggling with his attachments. So we need to get him to talk to somebody about it. So he'll just talk to. He can't talk to Obi Wan. If he talks to Padme directly, that kind of blows the whole thing. So I guess he'll just tell uh, Jar Jar Pinks. Right. <laughs> it, it, what? What? Come yeah. on. Yeah. Come on. But yeah, okay. Um, what uh, what kind of things did you love about this? I love. It, it's just like it. There's a bunch of things with. Uh, they just don't. The payoff's not there, right? So I love Obi Wan Kenobi's like uh, uh, sleuthing, hard boiled detective. Yeah. Scene. Yeah. I love his uh, his minefield chase scene mm-hmm. with uh, with Bobo and Jenga Fett, and how much that yeah. mirrored the uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yes, and I yeah. I love the uh, those seismic mines or whatever where the explosion. Oh yeah, the explosion's faster than the sound. So cool. Yeah, but other than that, like Obi Wan's whole side quest, I was into it. Even the first time I saw it, I was into it. And then everything else that happens in the movie, I'm like, I wish we could just be on this detective chase some more. Right. Right. It would be cool. Maybe we'll get something like that in the Obi Wan uh, series. But him as like a detective, because mm-hmm. Obi Wan kind of does that, and uh, he he's he's got a bit more scrappiness to him than the other Jedi, mm-hmm. right? Like he gets in this fist fight with Jango, he loses his lightsaber right at the beginning of that fight, yeah, and then he has to find these other ways to fight him, and then he puts a tracker on there, you know, and continues the fight. Easily one of the coolest whole sequences, you know whole side quests mm-hmm. in all of star wars 
and I, I would say. Yeah, and I think there was an opportunity there to kind of show Obi-Wan as uh, between two worlds, in a way, be, where he's not fully the same as the rest of the Jedi, but at the same time, he's still... Like, when you talk about his scrappiness, his fist-fightingness, his, his curiosity and his desire to kind of dig into things and turn over rocks, where he's not quite like the rest of the dogmatic, prideful Jedi... But at the same time, he still stands for the Republic and the Jedi because that's what he's supposed to do. Right, right. And I think there's an opportunity there to kind of show him between two worlds and, and for him to be a little frustrated and like, why doesn't anybody else care about these things? And why am I the one turning over rocks? And you guys sit on the council and forgive me for speaking out of turn, but I'm just frustrated right now. And then they tell him he sounds too much like Qui-Gon Jinn and we can have a whole thing, right? And we can kind of see some conflict. and Yeah. And then... And then that feeds Anakin a little bit. That would have been awesome. They don't really show Obi-Wan's conflict as much. They show him on both of those sides because a lot of the dogmatic things come from Obi-Wan. This weapon is your life, Anakin. He says a lot of these dogmatic things, but he doesn't show frustration with like the other dogmatic things when they aren't working for him. Jocasta News just like, oh, if it's not in our records, it does not exist. And then he says, okay, well, I'll just go ask somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Right? In- instead of being like, you idiot. <laughs> right? Like, how how could you say that? Right? Do you think we track everything? Do you think we know everything? Come on. Mm-hmm. And and so I think some more of that would have been great. I love your idea of having them say something like, oh, you have too much of your old master in you. Mm-hmm. Right? You have too much Qui-Gon in you that would have been cool uh because it, it it would further cement that he's an outlier yeah and I, well one thing that's interesting maybe this is just making too many excuses for it but he says the dogmatic things to anakin because anakin is his responsibility and it's not the responsibility he wanted so when you when you have to like like you know like if you've ever had a teacher who was teaching the greater class that they didn't want to teach. Like I had elementary school teachers like this, where it's like, really, I want to be teaching like grade 12 English, but I'm, I got to start somewhere. So I'm just going to parrot all this bull crap to you guys, but I don't really care. And that's kind of the situation Obi-Wan's in. He's like, I didn't want to train this kid. I don't really think he should be trained. He's a pathetic life form from Tatooine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but my old master told me to do this as my dying wish. And so it, in some ways, because he's dogmatic with Anakin, but he's not so dogmatic with the Jedi, it's like, I've got this kid that I have to take care of, and I don't really know what to say or how to manage this, so Andy's the chosen one, so I'm just going to say all the stuff they told me when I was in the Academy. Right, right. I'm just going to try and, and and be the ideal Jedi for him. Yeah. And then when Anakin's off on his own, that's when Obi-Wan does his sleep. He's like, okay, I can be myself. I can go against the green. I can do whatever I want. Because then he loses his lightsaber. And uh, I, I love when when he goes to Kamino and he's walking around. And she's like, Master Jedi, we've been expecting you. And then he goes along with her. They go in. He meets the prime minister. And then and then he, uh, he, he says, I think you'll be quite impressed with the army we've created. And he's like, I-, I would love to see it. You know, he just <laughs> like goes along with it, yeah. which is great detective work. Yeah. He's not there like, whoa, 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 wait up, wait up. We never ordered an army. And then they're like, well, what the F are you doing here? You know, who are you? Are you a Jedi? Right. Instead, he's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's like, oh, I'd love to, I'd love to meet Django Fett. Mm-hmm. Right. He's not saying, 
oh, we have reason to believe that he's behind the attempted assassinations of <laughs> Padme Amidala. Yeah. I, I, I think he does a great job. And I think Ewan McGregor often and, and rightfully so gets credited as one of the single best parts of the prequel trilogy. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is that this wasn't because even like with the original trilogy, like it's Anakin's story told through the eyes of Luke Skywalker. This should be Anakin's story told through the eyes of Obi-Wan. And if you kind of had that central focus of Obi-Wan, it would be a bit better, but it's like, it, yeah, it becomes very disjointed. I'd say like one thing, if I could have rewritten the prequels, I actually would have started with attack of the clones and who cares where we found Anakin. He's just a Jedi who's learning and Obi-Wan's his friend. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you start out with Anakin's in the Academy thing, and uh, he's about to get assigned to a master or a knight or whatever. And then, you know, so you have a bunch of stuff happening with Anakin learning how to be a Jedi, and you got Obi-Wan going doing some super sleuthing stuff, and then they get lumped together as this reluctant duo. Like, And then you start feeling like it's Han Solo and Luke Skywalker all over again. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we introduce Padme somewhere. She's a captain or a general or something like that. And the three of them go on adventures. And then it ends, you know, in a similar way. And then Revenge of the Sith, everything up until Order 66 is one movie. Mm-hmm. And then Order 66 and Hunting Down the Jedi and the final confrontation between Obi-Wan and Anakin is the last movie. That would have been epic. Yeah. yeah. And the stakes would have been raising every time, right? Right, right. Because then now the Jedi are being hunted yeah by their army and it escalate like it escalates between obi-wan and anakin you know what i mean it's kind of like anakin standing there at the jedi temple on fire and obi-wan sees him at the end of the movie and then anakin jumps into a uh into a star cruiser and leaves and says like good luck or something like that and that's the end and you're like oh, oh. or they have some kind they have some kind of fight maybe you could turn him to mechanical darth vader at the end but they have some kind of fight at the end of it and then you just know the next time they get together it's going to be like oh crap maybe obi-wan cuts off his hand at the end and and then leaves him i'd be i'd be there for that that said that said i do think they're going to tatooine is one of the best parts of of this movie i think that's got some of the best sequences right yeah you you brought up the shadow of Darth Vader, right? That yeah. symbolism. Yeah, oh man. That scene was like, I remember seeing it in the theater. I remember completely forgetting about it and then only re-realizing it when I watched uh, in preparation for doing this podcast. So I remember seeing it in the theater. And even in the theater, I was kind of like, well, this is a bit ham-fisted. And then I forgot about it. And then I watched it again and I was like, oh my gosh, this scene is awesome. I, I think it's, it's well done. And it, I think... It's it's one of those things where it's a cue to the audience, mm-hmm. but not not to the characters. Yeah. And then what comes immediately after that is it it it, it kind of foreshadows that, right? You think, oh, he's just going to get his mom, but then you see the shadow of Darth Vader, mm-hmm. and then he goes and kills a whole village of, of people. And John Williams's score there, that kind of rising. That he that he does. Well, he plays Duel of the Fates when he's in the speeder bike. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. this is the moment of destiny for Anakin. Yeah, yeah. I really thought, like, when I saw that Darth Vader shadow scene, it was when I watched it again. Like, I think when I watched it a kid, I was like, okay, this is a bit ham-fisted, kind of. Yeah, we get it. And I saw the poster from Episode One where it's little Anakin casting the shadow of Darth Vader. Like, thanks for doing this again. 
But when I watched it again, I was like, this is where Anakin chooses the dark side. This is where he becomes Darth Vader. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, this is this is the moment. And you kind of see, you know, moments before where you're kind of like, eh. And then, but this is like the serious, okay, like this is, he's on the path now. Mm-hmm. He he committed this terrible act. And I think the, the big difference, yeah, it's a whole village uh, of people and we see them that way. But in the Star Wars universe, sand people aren't seen as human. Mm-hmm. They're not seen as intelligent creatures. They're seen as monsters. Mm-hmm. They are, you know, like Anakin says, they're animals and I slaughtered them like animals. That's the way that they're perceived in the Star Wars universe on Tatooine. And so then that's, you know, it kind of gives him that license to treat them as less than before he commits Jedi side in the next but film. Like one thing that bugged me, even when I first saw it, was how Padme just kind of goes along with it. She's not and like... That, I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, she's probably got some sort of Stockholm syndrome or Trauma something. bond. Yeah. I just like, it would make more sense if Anakin was like, he just kept it secret because the dark side is all like secrecy and right, deception. Right. And- I, th- I think if he kept it secret and then they showed it eating up at him. Yes. In the next couple films. Yeah. And then he starts to see himself more and more as an evil person. Mm-hmm. And he internalizes that saying, you know, saying to himself, I have secrets I can't tell anybody. I slaughtered a whole village of other beings and and I can't I can't share that with anyone. And it eats him up inside and to the point where he internalizes it and he just starts to see himself as evil. Even though Padme loves him, Obi-Wan loves him, he's got other friends, maybe, and then but it just, you know, tears at him inside because he's not what they think he is. And it and it makes him worse. Wow, look at us. We should we should write screenplays. There's like a million other ways to go with these movies that could have made them better than what we got. But they're still good and I still I still love that scene. Right. I'd say like the climactic uh duel with and it's not even climactic, I should say the anticlimactic duel with Darth Tyrannus. Because there's no real conflict between these guys, so we don't really care that they get in a fight. It's like they get into a lightsaber fight because they're the good guys and he's the bad guy, but there's no kind of personal stake there. And then there's one point in time where there it just starts to look like a disco show because the light, you know, the <laughs> yeah. lights go out and they're just spinning the lightsabers over their head. And all you yeah. see, you don't even see the lightsaber, you just see the, the light alternates on face. between face shots. And, it's like and, a rave. Yeah. yeah. And if you'd kept Darth Maul in, then and kept him as the central bad guy, then you could have... Because Dooku serves no purpose. They don't elaborate. I think there are ways that they could have elaborated on his character because he trained Qui-Gon. And so maybe if if there was some sort of, hey, you were my master's master and you failed him or something. Mm-hmm. If you yep. made it personal for Obi-Wan mm-hmm. to be going after Dooku, yep. I could see that. Yes. Right. And I hate how they just throw it away that he was Qui-Gon's master. Yeah, they don't really give it any great stakes, mm-hmm. right? They don't They don't use that. It's just kind mm-hmm. of like, oh, you know, I, I think that could have been a great way to go about it. But they they missed out on that. And yeah, I agree. It is kind of that that sequence was was a little disappointing. And then like when Padme falls off the cruiser and Anakin wants to go after her and Obi-Wan's like, no, your duties to the Republic or whatever. And then Anakin's like, okay. 
like there's just there's a lot of scenes that aren't like logically flowing from each other and so that's why i question when you're like no these oversights are intentional i'm like well when you lump them in with all the other oversights i think it's just like they weren't thinking this through properly i don't know but i i i think it really is just the dialogue i think it i i think they did a poor job presenting it yeah his his duty is to the republic he's got to do his job they've got to go after dooku Mm -hmm. she'll be fine right it's it's not like there's battle droids surrounding her she doesn't need somebody to save her Mm -hmm. they'll go back and get her i think i think that's kind of a a part of it but yeah i yeah i mean like one thing that would have been more sensical in the tuscan raider slaughter just as another aside of like nothing flowing from its self is that Anakin the first one talks about becoming a Jedi and coming back to free all the slaves if they'd had some kind of situation room in the Jedi Council or something like that and it's like they make a throwaway comment about reports of slave traders raiding Tatooine and Anakin getting really upset about it and like this is what we should be working on instead of Mm -hmm. these we need to be liberating people and they shut him down and then he gets angry and says I'm going anyway this is my home and whatever that could have been like that could have carried some weight and gravity and and thrown back to the original movie and it would have made sense for why Anakin's starting to become disillusioned now because he sees a moral evil in the galaxy and the Jedi are just getting tied up in like political bodyguarding and that way he has his own mission his own motives we talked about this in the original trilogy where each of the characters have their own reason for being there and you see it clearly, and it makes sense for them to be there. Whereas Anakin, he just kind of gets dragged along. Mm-hmm. He he loses his his purpose. And I think that the idea of going back and freeing the slaves, it's an honest, real, important thing for him. Mm-hmm. And it probably is. It's just never addressed in the movies. Like, it would make sense for that to be a motivation. But it's never really talked about. The only thing is his mother, which is a great motivation, and that works. But it doesn't give the same thing. And he also, he he goes there based on his nightmares instead of, of, hey, I just love my mom and want to see how she's doing. It's like, no, I've been having these bad dreams about her. So now I care. Or they wouldn't even need to say, like, slave traders on Tatooine. They could have just said in the Outer Rim territories. And then he starts having nightmares and visions about his mom being enslaved. And then when the Jedi don't let him do stuff, he starts to feel like he's a slave of the Jedi. And he has this conflict or dialogue about, like, when will I ever be free to act for myself? I was a slave on Tatooine, and now I'm controlled by the Jedi. And when will I ever be free kind of thing? And if they cast somebody who's a little less whiny sounding, then it could have been like, you'd take it seriously when he says it. Well, and I also think that they, the way they wrote the lines, I don't think Hayden Christensen necessarily just delivers his lines whiny all the time. I think the way they wrote him was whiny. They came whiny, but he's got a wimpy little voice, right? I don't know. He does. He's got like I'm a, gonna defend, and he's got I'm a gonna very, defend. very boyish look. And he, he, he is a, he right? is definitely he's more very boyish. scrawny. Like he, it looks like he put on like 20 pounds of muscle between attack of the clones oh, in in for sure revenge of the sith right yeah so he's yeah. this <laughs> i think i'm anakin I think skywalker this is, i got a lightsaber like <laughs> i my name is anakin skywalker and i'm, and I'm a, a person. person yeah i think this is the most rewritey we have been on this podcast yeah but there, it's because it's because there there was a lot of potential here and i think a lot of it got missed mm-hmm. i still enjoyed it 
I yeah. still like the the movie, and I think there are a lot of great great scenes, uh, especially I mean to have the little side quest actually turn out in something. Wow, that's great! Who had any idea that you could do that in in a Star Wars film? Hmm. Well, tune in um, several weeks from now when we talk about Episode Eight. Uh, yeah. Okay. We'll we'll get there. We'll get there, and we'll we'll address our feelings about that. But I I like this movie, and uh, yeah. Do you have any final thoughts before you wrap us up? Uh, no final thoughts for me. All right, then take us away. The prequels came out when I was twelve, with Revenge of the Sith concluding when I was eighteen. That put Attack of the Clones right in the middle of my teen years. I was 15. I was too young to drive, but old enough for my parents to let me take the bus anywhere. This was before cell phones, before parents could track their kids' movement. My parents just had to trust that I could go out, wander around town, and not die and come back at a decent hour. The theater within walking distance from my house closed down the spring before Attack of the Clones came out. So me and my friend took the bus to a different theater to see Episode 2. This might seem small, but it's a memory of me growing in independence. I think around 11 a.m. I said, I'm going to the movies, taking the bus, see you later. My mom may or may not have looked up from the five other kids she was trying to raise to say goodbye. I had to walk about half an hour to pick up my friend, to get to the bus that took us to the theater, and then the bus took about another 45 minutes or so. Then we got into whatever showing we could get into, and it was a Saturday afternoon, so it wasn't too busy. I'm 99% sure on the bus ride to the theater we saw this girl who was a great ahead of us and super hot, so that made it memorable on its own. I remember being so disappointed by just about everything in the movie. We get the Obi-Wan detective story that kind of goes nowhere. We talk about and then immediately forget Sifo Diaz. Hayden Christensen is so young and dainty and boyish that it was too far a stretch to see him as the proto-Dark Lord of the Sith. He acts his heart out, he's just not menacing or physically imposing. If the sequel trilogy did one thing right, it was casting Adam Driver as the bad guy. But anyway, I couldn't buy it when he killed the Sand People to avenge his mother. I was completely surprised that he starts living a double life and all the Jedi can't sense his deception. But despite its weaknesses, the movie remains a favorite because of its connection to my coming of age. 